0: Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, that's our text this morning. If you're just joining us or if you are visiting with us, we are moving our way systematically, we would say expositionally, uh, through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And we find ourselves this morning parked right in chapter 3, specifically in the parking spot of verses 14 through 19. The text before us this morning is the second of two prayers that are recorded in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. The first prayer uh, was all the way back in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, and that prayer that Paul prayed emphasized enlightenment. As a matter of fact, Paul prayed this. He prayed that the Ephesians' eyes and their hearts would be enlightened. They would know, they would understand the truths of the gospel. Here in the second prayer... Chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, Paul emphasizes enablement, enlightenment in chapter 1, and that they would be enabled here in chapter 3. In other words, Paul's saying, now that you know what you have in Christ, now that you know how rich you are in Christ, now put it to work. Start using it. Start using your position in Christ. Paul began the prayer in front of us back in verse 1. You remember that, but he temporarily pressed the pause button. Verses 2 through 13 are a, are a parentheses, so to speak, in, in Paul's thought process here. Paul pressed the pause button in verses 2 through 13 to reemphasize some very important truths concerning the gospel message and his ministry. Remember I mentioned a couple of weeks back that I think Paul pressed the pause button on his prayer because he wanted to over-engineer the Gentiles' theology. He wanted to ensure that the pilings of the gospel truths that he labored to teach sunk deep into their hearts and minds before he picks back up here in verse 14. And so he, he digressed a bit. But The prayer that Paul began in verse 1, he picks back up this morning in verse 14. and That's where we find ourselves. We've got lots of ground to cover this morning, so let's turn our attention to our text. If you have the ability this morning, I want to encourage you to stand as we read God's word together. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, pins the following words. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that... Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You may be seated. Four points appear on your outline this morning if you're taking notes. Let me draw your attention to number one. We want to say a few things about Paul's posture of prayer here. Write this down. It's a posture of humility and reverence. The posture that we see Paul taking here in verses 14 and 15 is a posture of humility and reverence. You see, in light of the magnitude of the manifold wisdom of God, Paul bows in prayer here. I want you just to imagine for a moment what that must have been like for the Roman guard whom Paul was tethered to as he's on house arrest here in Rome. Paul says, I bow before the Father, literally incarcerated on some form of house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier. Perhaps the opening statement of Paul's prayer here, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, perhaps that opening statement doesn't strike your attention, especially if you are accustomed to kneeling when you pray. But Paul's posture here in verse 14 is significant. It's very significant because standing was the usual position that you would find a pious Jew praying. Jesus told the parable in Luke chapter 18, he said, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all of my tithes. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to the heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Standing was the posture, was the position that you would oftentimes find a pious Jew praying in. Even today, Jews stand at the wailing wall in Jerusalem, rocking back and forth as they pray. But the position of the body isn't as, as nearly as important as the attitude of Paul's heart here. You see, Paul's bowing before the Father expresses more about what's going on inside of him than it does express what's going on outside. You see, Paul's posture here—it isn't meant to be prescriptive, but it does tell us something about Paul's humility and his reverence before the Lord. You see, whether we bow our, our knees isn't the important thing, but that we bow our hearts and our will to the Lord in prayer, that is important. That we bow our hearts and bow our wills to the Lord in prayer. That's the vital matter. The posture that Paul takes here is one of great humility and reverence. And notice that Paul says, I bow my knees, and then he adds this phrase before the Father. Father is the designation that, that Jesus used in prayer. It was the one that he taught his disciples to use when they prayed. Pray like this Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the significance of this fatherly designation, you ask? Well, because God is our Heavenly Father, we don't have to come to Him in fear and trembling. As a matter of fact, you look back at our text from last week, and we have boldness, we have access to God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We don't come to God feeling like we have to appease Him in some way. Jesus has already done that for those who are in Christ. You see, as a loving father always accepts the advances of his children, even when they've been disobedient or ungrateful. How much more does our Heavenly Father accept his children, regardless of what they've done or not done? You see, Paul approaches the Father with boldness and confidence, bowed low in reverence and humility, but he approaches him and calls him by the designation Father. Father. Remember, the Jews took Jesus to task, For using those words, you call God your father, that's blasphemous. But that is the very relationship, the filial relationship that we enter into when we come to know Christ savingly. You see, Paul and we alike approach God as father with boldness and confidence, knowing that he is more than willing for his children to come to him than they even are to come to him. God is more willing for his children to come than we are of even going to him. Let me say a few things this morning about the necessity of prayerfulness. That's what's taking place here. Paul's bowing his knees. Verses 14 and 15 are really the introduction of the prayer. Verse 16 begins Paul's first line or his launching out into the prayer. But before we get there, let me say a few things about the necessity of prayerfulness. You see, for Paul, prayer was as essential to his spiritual life as breathing was to his natural life. John Piper once referred to prayer as the Christian's wartime walkie-talkie. And that's not an irreverent way to describe prayer, I don't think. We must remember that we are behind enemy lines this side of eternity. Prayer is our one-way communication to the Father. We communicate to Him through prayer. He communicates to us through His divinely inspired Word. When we communicate to Him behind enemy lines, it is as if prayer is our wartime walkie-talkie. When should we pray? Well, the answer to that is yes. When should we pray? Well, Paul tells us when we should pray in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. says that we should give thanks in all circumstances, that we should rejoice always, pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Hey, by the way, there are things in life that we, we don't know whether it's God's will or not. Should I take this job or that job? Well, God's word doesn't tell us that. There is a lot that God's Word does tell us clearly, but you can take this to the bank. When God's Word says, this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, friends, that's the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. You don't need to pray about that one. It's clear. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said, we should pray when we're in a praying mood. For it would be sinful to neglect such a fair opportunity. We should also pray when we're not in a proper mood, for it would be dangerous for us to remain in such an unhealthy condition. You see, prayer is the way and the means that God has appointed for the communication of His blessings and His goodness to His children. A prayer communicates a lot about you. It communicates a lot about me, as a matter of fact. One, a pastor has referred to prayer as a window to the soul. Tell a lot about a person by what they pray for, or what they don't pray for. As a matter of fact, what you pray for, by and large, is what you care about. What you don't pray for, you would have a more difficult time making a case for your care for those things. We pray for that which we care for and care about. We don't pray or we neglect to pray that which we really don't care much about. You can tell a lot about a person by their prayer. I was reminded by a godly man this week that we spend more time, oftentimes, praying to keep Christians out of heaven than we do praying to keep sinners out of hell. Think about that for a moment. We spend much more time praying that the Lord would leave our precious ones here, that he would heal their bodies, than we do praying that the Lord would keep sinners out of hell. Our prayers communicate a lot about our view of God. If we have high and lofty thoughts and a high and lofty view of God, our prayers will be reflective of that. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. You believe that? Your view of God will tell whether you believe that. Our prayers communicate a lot about how we view God. Our prayers communicate a lot about how we view ourselves. You see, prayer communicates dependence amongst other things. When when we bow our hearts, when we bow our heads in prayer, what we're communicating in our prayer is that I am an all-needy beneficiary and God is an all-sufficient benefactor. That's what I'm communicating when I pray, is I'm in need and God can supply I'm in need and God can supply. Our our prayers communicate a lot about our view of ourselves, how how dependent we believe ourselves to be. Our prayers also communicate a lot about our view of our circumstances. If we're being honest, and this stings just a little bit for me, most of our prayers fall into one of two categories. Either pain avoidance, it's a prayer like this, Lord, this hurts, please make it stop. Would fall in that category, or the category of a change of circumstances. It's, Lord, I don't like this. Will you change it, please? Lord, it hurts. Make it stop. Or, Lord, I don't like this. Will you change it, please? Now, let me let me connect this back to the text here just a little bit. Paul is tethered to a Roman guard incarcerated in Rome. And the thing that is on his mind is not even his own present circumstances. But is the growth In Christ's likeness is the growth in godliness of the church in Ephesus. That's what consumes his thoughts. Lord, take away my burdens. That's not an ungodly prayer. As a matter of fact, Paul prayed that prayer back in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I pleaded with the Lord three times that he would take this, take this thorn from my flesh To, to pray that way. Lord, take away my burdens. It's not an ungodly prayer. But perhaps a better prayer is, Lord, give me stronger shoulders to bear this load. Lord, give me the strength. Give me stronger shoulders. Give me your grace that I might bear this load in a way that is honoring and pleasing to you and in a way that reflects much of Jesus to a watching world. There's a few words about the necessity of prayer. Let me say a few things about the priority of prayerfulness. Mark chapter 1, there's a a wonderful text embedded there in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. It says, rising very early in the morning, speaking about Jesus, while it was still dark, he departed, went out to a solitary place, your Bible may say a desolate place, where he prayed. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed, went out to a solitary place where he prayed. There's a great lesson for us there. And that lesson is this, if Jesus, the eternal incarnate Son of God, the one who who is the exact imprint of the Father's nature, the one who spoke all things into existence and holds them presently together, drew his strength and drew his power and drew his guidance, even his words from communing with the Father in prayer, how much more so do we? J.C. Ryle, which I would commend to you as a author that you ought to read. He said this, he said, sinless as he was, speaking about Jesus, he set us an example of diligent communion with God. If he who was holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners thus prayed continually, how much ought we who are compassed with infirmity? A praying master can have no prayerless servants. Those who ask little must expect to have little. Seeking little, they cannot be surprised if they possess little. It will always be found that when prayers are few, grace and strength and peace and hope are small. When when prayers are found to be few, grace and strength and peace and hope, among other things, are usually found to be small. You see, Jesus, though he was God in the flesh, recognized in his, in his humanity that he was dependent upon the Father for his strength, for his ministry. We come up with so many excuses for our shallow prayer lives. And when I say we, uh, the, the, the target is right here. It's right square on me. I think the number one excuse for my and our lack of prayerfulness is oftentimes busyness, busyness. But the problem isn't that we're too busy. The problem is that we've deceived ourselves into believing that we're as busy as we think we are. You catch that? The problem is not that we're too busy. The problem is that we've deceived ourselves into thinking that we're as busy as we are. We don't fail to pray because we're pressed for time. We fail to pray because we've perverted our priorities. I do everything that I have a priority to do. When I'm hungry, out of the way. Don't get between me and the Nutella jar. It's priority. Adoniram Judson, I commend to you, a wonderfully encouraging missionary, once said this. He said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can never do more than pray until you've prayed. What a model Jesus has given us of humble dependence upon God. Think about your own prayer life now. What does it look like? It's 168 hours in a week. It's challenging for me when I think about how little time I spend before the throne of grace, which is so accessible to me. I have boldness and confidence to approach the throne of grace. And how often I, time, how often I under the umbrella or under the guise of busyness, fail to find myself there. Let me direct your attention back to the text here. Paul says, For this reason, thinking about the manifold wisdom of God, thinking about being entrusted with all the glories of the gospel, being a preacher, a herald of the gospel, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father in reverence and in humility. And then in verse 15, he goes on and he says, From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That's an interesting little phrase there from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. What does Paul mean here when he says that? Well, Some people, and the only way that you can get here is through some interpretive gymnastics, some, some biblical interpretive gymnastics, but some people have viewed that phrase, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, they have bent that phrase to say that God is the Father of all men. Call this the universal fatherhood of God. You won't find that in your Bible. He's the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, but he is father to his children. He is father to his children. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named doesn't teach that God is the spiritual father of every being in the universe. That would be a poor exegesis. That would be a poor interpretation based on the whole counsel of God's word. Rather, When Paul says that, when he says every family in heaven and on earth, he's referring to saints in every age, in our current age and in ages past, both Jews and Gentiles and every other nationality for that case. Refers to saints of every age, those now in heaven and those remaining on earth, who because of Christ relate to God as father and have derived their names, that name being son or daughter. Christian a Christian just means little Christ or Christ follower you've you've derived your name who you are your identity comes from God who is your father let's look at verse 16 verse 16 moves us from the introduction of Paul's uh, prayer here to the content of his prayer this brings us to point number 2 on your outline if you're taking notes and this is the first request that Paul makes That request is this, that we would be strengthened by the Spirit of God. Here's Paul, tethered to a Roman guard, house arrest, incarcerated in some form there in Rome, and he's praying for this vibrant, growing church in Ephesus churches around the area of Asia Minor there, and his request is that they would be strengthened by the Spirit of God. Friends, if you ever want to know what to pray for another Christian, look look at this and other biblical prayers as great models. If you ever wonder, what, what things should I be praying for my brothers and sisters in Christ? Here's a great example. Of the types of things, the content that we should be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul prays that we would be strengthened by the Spirit of God. His first request of the Father is spiritual strength. He says, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he, God, may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What a request! We oftentimes pray things like this. God, I pray that Jimmy would would feel good today, and I pray that Marjorie would uh, would would do well at her meeting. And those are all fine and great, but but where's the spiritual content of our prayers? Paul gives us some great spiritual content here with which we can model in our own prayer lives. What a request! You see, unfortunately, many Christians expect very little from God, therefore they ask very little from God, therefore they receive very little from God, and therefore they are content with very little from God. But Paul encourages us here to pray big. He knew that we needed to be strengthened to receive all the blessings that God has given us and to carry all the responsibilities that God desires for us. In other words, paper bags aren't fit containers for valuables. Paper bags aren't fit vessels for valuables. You need a stronger vessel. Take that and apply it to us. Paul says, I pray that they would be strengthened, that they would be vessels able to carry all the spiritual blessings that God has provided for them in Christ, and that they would be able, with God's strength, to carry out all the responsibilities which He desires for us. Paul prays that we would be strong vessels. There's four things I want you to notice about the spiritual strength that Paul prays here in verse 16. Number one, spiritual strength that Paul prays for here, it can't be measured in human terms. Look back at your Bible. Paul's praise that God would strengthen us according to the riches of his glory. Think storehouse here. According to the storehouse of his glory. Now, Paul's not asking for some small dose of power here. As a matter of fact, we saw some very similar language back in chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul said this, he said, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And then he adds this phrase, According to the riches of his grace. According to the riches of his grace. Here Paul prays that we will be strengthened according to the riches of his glory. Back in chapter 1, he prayed that we would be encouraged by the riches of his grace. Remember we noted those two words, according to, when we studied that text back there in chapter 1, verse 7, those two little words, according to, they're very important little words. Remember if a wealthy person gives to someone in need, there's two distinct ways that that wealthy person can give to a person in need. First of all, he can give to that person in need according to his riches, which is what Paul speaks about here. Or a wealthy person could give to someone less fortunate, so to speak, giving from his riches. What's the difference, you ask? Well, track with me for a minute. If a wealthy person gives pocket change to a homeless person in need, he's merely giving from his riches. In other words, his giving is insignificant to to the value of his wealth. But if, on the other hand, a wealthy person gives a homeless person a check for a half million dollars, now he's given according to his riches. You see the difference? The beautiful picture here when, when Paul prays that God would strengthen us according to his glorious riches. Just as God has given us according to his riches of grace, so he also gives us spiritual strength according to the riches or according to the storehouse of his glory. Friends, do you need strength to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength? It's available, it's richly available. Do you need strength to be a bold witness for Christ? It's available. It's richly available. Do you need strength to fight temptation and sin? The answer is yes. I need thee every hour, O precious Lord. Well, that strength is available. And it's available in abundance. According to the riches of his glory, the storehouse of his glory, his strength is made available. Whatever your spiritual need, the strength of God is available and it's adequate. Your need can never supersede the strength of God. Your spiritual condition can never supersede the grace of God. Never. Never, never. The second thing I want you to notice is that the spiritual strength that Paul prays for is a gift. While the strength, that, the strength of God is available for our daily Christian lives, we must never presume on it. God's strength is a gift that he gives, not a debt that he owes. Notice Paul says that he may grant you to be strengthened. That word grant there is an important word. God owes no man anything, but he does delight in empowering his children to please him. You see, all of our obedience in the Christian life, though it is required of us, is the result of the spiritual strength that God supplies. Think about that for a moment. All the obedience, all of our obedience in the Christian life, though it is required of us, is also dependent upon God giving His strength and His enabling power. And He does so generously. God's strength for the Christian life is a gift of His grace. He grants it to us to be strengthened. Third, the spiritual strength that Paul prays for comes from the Holy Spirit. Look back at your Bible. Paul prays, may you be strengthened with power through His Spirit. We're strengthened with resurrection power here. That word power in your Bible, it's the exact same word that we've seen all throughout Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. It's the Greek word dunamis. It's the exact same word that was used of Christ being raised from the grave in power because that same resurrection power is made available to Christians. That same power, the resurrection power of Christ, is made available to every Christian for his or her daily Christian life. But that power comes through the means of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always the agent through whom the grace of God flows. The Holy Spirit is always the agent who who applies God's graces to the believer, And I love this. Praise God that we aren't left to meddle in our own strength. I don't know about you, but I'm not that strong. And actually, that was an incorrect statement. I do know that you're not that strong because I know there's no temptation that sees you except that, which is common to man, and God is merciful, he's gracious. And if I'm weak, then so are you. But praise God that we have a strong Savior and that we aren't left to meddle in our own strength to try and please and obey him in the Christian life. The strength that Paul prays for comes from the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, the spiritual strength that Paul prays for changes and transforms the inner man. You see, Paul's answer to the question of how we're to be strengthened, that's according to the riches of his grace and his glory. But he also answers the where question here. Where are we to be strengthened? We're to be strengthened in our inner being or in our inner man. You know, it's worth noting that the prayer that Paul prayed in chapter 1, the prayer here in our text this morning, as well as every other of Paul's prison prayers, that which is in Philippians, that which is in Colossians, all of those prayers are concerned with the spiritual condition, the inner man, the inner being. Every single one of Paul's prayers were concerned with what goes on inside of us, with what's taking place on the inside. Certainly there's something for us to learn here. Is it wrong for us to pray for physical or material needs? It's not. It's not. Paul understood that. And there were times where Paul prayed for some physical needs. Send me so and so. I have need for this. I know the Lord will supply. I know the Lord will take care of me. My God will grant all your needs in Christ Jesus. There were times where Paul prayed for physical or material things. But Paul understood that the inner man is what was most important. And I would venture to say that proportionately, much of our time is probably spent in prayer focusing on that which is external to the neglect of that which is internal. Probably, proportionately speaking, most of our time in prayer is probably spent more on that which is external than on that which is internal and most important. Remember Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he said, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You know, I think about three precious saints who have gone to be with the Lord in the last three weeks. Outwardly wasting away. These bodies are are not getting any better. We live in a Genesis 3 fallen, cursed world. And these bodies are subject to the effects of the fall, subject to the effects of sin. Outwardly, we're wasting away. But the inner man, the inner man, can be being renewed day by day. How? Input input equals output. As As we're flushing our hearts and our minds with the Word of God, as we're spending time communing with Him in humble prayer, the inner man, Is being renewed day by day. Look at verse 17. Paul tells us that the purpose of our being strengthened with power through His Spirit in our inner being. He tells us what that purpose is. He says, so that, that's a purpose clause, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That word dwell there. Look at your Bible. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The word "dwell" is the Greek word oikeo, It's a compound word consisting of the preposition kata, means down, or below, and the word oikeo means to occupy a house. So the word "dwell" here has the idea of settling down and feeling at home in a believer's heart. Look back at that verse. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith has the idea of Christ settling down and feeling at home in the believer's heart. Now, make no mistake about it, friends. If you are converted, if you truly know Christ by grace through faith, then he already resides in your heart. You possess the Holy Spirit. The word dwell here has the idea of Christ being at home, of Christ feeling at home in the Christian's heart. Christ already is resident in the heart of every Christian. That takes place the moment of conversion. If that weren't already settled, then Paul would not have referred to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 1 as saints. Paul isn't referring to Christ indwelling believers in salvation here, but rather in sanctification. In other words, what Paul is praying for here is a depth of intimacy that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What Paul's praying for there is a depth of intimacy that we should be striving for. You see, as believers, we should yearn for an ever-deepening fellowship and intimacy with Christ. Some years ago, Robert Munger wrote a short booklet entitled, My Heart, Christ's Home. In that booklet, he pictures the Christian's heart as as a house in which Jesus moves about freely from room to room. And that heart, that house, it has a library, it has a living room, it has a dining room, it has a workshop, and it has many closets, as all of our hearts do. And in the library, which is the mind, Jesus finds all sorts of worthless things. And so he comes in and he begins to replace them with his word. And in the living room, that's, that's where fellowship takes place. He finds many worldly companions and many worldly activities taking place. And so he calls us to bring those under his lordship. In the dining room, that's where appetite takes place. He finds a list of sinful desires presented on a worldly menu. And that's our love for, for status and our gripping fingers of materialism and our lusts. And he begins to replace those with humility and meekness and love and all the other virtues which believers are to hunger and thirst for that please him. As he walks through the workshop of our heart, he finds many toys and trinkets that compete for our time and our allegiance. And in the closet of our hearts, he finds there are many hidden sins that are kept out of the sight of others. You see, it's only when he has cleaned every room, every closet, and every corner of sin and foolishness that he can settle down and be at home in our hearts. You see what he's saying there? A believer who's come to saving faith in Christ already possesses the Holy Spirit. Paul's not talking about conversion here. He's talking about sanctification. As we grow in Christ's likeness, as we grow in dealing with our sin, there is a sense in which Christ begins to settle down and to be at home in our hearts. That's what Paul prays for here. He prays that we might bear more resemblance to Christ, that we would have an ever-yearning, growing desire for intimacy with Christ, that Christ would be at home in our hearts by faith. I mean, what request? Again, let me me just call you to think about how we pray for our brothers and sisters. And does it look something like this? What prayers? Paul's first request is that we would be strengthened by the Spirit of God. Well, number three on your outline, and this is Paul's second request, is that we would comprehend the vast love of Christ. That we would comprehend the vast love of Christ. He wants us to be strengthened by God's Spirit, but he wants us to understand how vast Christ's love is for us. Look back at verse 17. Paul continues. And he says this, he says, Being rooted and grounded in love, may you have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Paul uses two very unique words words here in verse 17 to help us understand how we're to be growing in our understanding of Christ's love. The first word that Paul uses is the word rooted. Look at your Bible there. Rooted. Rooted is an agricultural term. You see, if a tree is to gain both nourishment and stability, it must sink its roots deep into the soil. Likewise, a Christian must sink his or her roots deeply into the love of Christ. Let me ask you this question, friends. Where, where are you drawing your source of nourishment, spiritual nourishment and stability? Are, are, you, are you spending time in the Word? Are you taking advantage of the means of grace, the Word of God, prayer, the fellowship of like-minded believers? Where, where, where are you going? Where is your source of spiritual nourishment and stability? If it's anywhere else, then the love of Christ, the vast love of Christ as displayed in the word of God, communicated to us by the gospel, then you have your roots in insufficient soil. A Christian must sink his or her roots deeply into the love of Christ. Christ. If you don't, you'll be like a tree with shallow roots and a ship with an anchor that's not long enough to reach the bottom of the ocean's floor. If there is to be power in the Christian life, strength in the Christian life, there must be deep roots embedded in the love of Christ for us. The second word that Paul uses is the word grounded. If the word rooted is an agricultural term, the word grounded here is an architectural term speaks of construction. It refers to the foundations upon which something is built. You see, the most important part of any structure is its foundation. You, you, you don't, if you don't dig deep, you can't build high. If you don't dig deep, you can't build high. You see, storms... What storms do is they reveal the strength of roots. If you don't have a solid foundation that's a firm grasp of the gospel and all its truths, then when the wind and the ways of life howl, and they will, all you need do is live long enough, and the wind and the ways of life will howl, then you will be tossed to and fro. Remember, Jesus told the, the parable in Matthew chapter 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. When the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon the house, it did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock. And the text goes on and tells us the tragedy of the converse. You can't build high unless you dig deep. We must have a strong foundation. We must be grounded, not only rooted in the love of Christ for us, but grounded in the gospel and all of its truths. Here's an important side note. It's only those who are rooted and grounded in the love of Christ that can turn around and display the love of Christ to others. Only those who who have roots that are sunk deeply, that are embedded deeply into Christ's love for us as displayed on Calvary's cross that can turn right around and love others the way that God calls us to love others. Same thing is true about grace and mercy. The most gracious people and the most merciful people are those who recognize how much grace and mercy they've been given. Paul goes on to say, Look at your Bible. He says, May you have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. I mean, Paul's praying for more than just a theoretical knowledge here. Paul wants that church at Ephesus and us as well to have an experiential understanding of the love of Christ. Not just a theoretical knowledge, not just to know Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, but to experience the love of Christ as displayed in the gospel. He wants us to know it, to grasp it, to take hold of it, to make it our own. The word comprehend there in your Bible stems from the Latin word prehendre. It means to grasp something. Monkeys are amongst those critters that uh, have a prehensile tail. It means they can grab on to something with their tail. That tail is is able to grab hold of a limb and to hold on to it. Likewise, Paul wants us to comprehend, to grasp, to appropriate the vast love of Christ. Where does this this comprehension come from? Paul wants us to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. Where does that comprehension come from? Where does that understanding come from? Not just a theoretical knowledge, but where does that experiential knowledge of the love of Christ come from? Well, friends, it comes from being immersed in the Word of God. It comes from being immersed daily in the Word of God. Job said this, he said, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than the portion of my food. Is that true right about now? I've treasured the words of his mouth more than the portion of my food. How how sweet to my lips. It's like honey, sweeter than honey from the comb. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. I mean, all these metaphors for the word of God, where does this comprehension of the love of Christ come from? It comes from, from spending extended time sitting before the word of God. Taking in. Well, to help enlarge our view of Christ's fathomless love, Paul uses four poetic dimensions. Look at your Bible. He talks about the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Christ's love. That's a love that's broad enough to embrace all the redeemed, regardless of ethnicity or nationality, Jew and Gentile. It's broad enough to embrace all the redeemed. It's a love that's long enough to choose us before the foundation of the world and yet last on through eternity for days without end. It's that long. It's a love that's high enough to bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and to seat us with Christ in the heavenly places. It's that high. And it's a love that's deep enough to reach to the lowest levels of depravity and to redeem those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. It's that low. The love of Christ is infinitely broad, infinitely long, infinitely high, and infinitely deep. There's a bit of a paradox here. Paul wants us to know and to comprehend the vastness of Christ's love for us, but then he turns right back around and he says that the love of Christ surpasses all knowledge. You catch that? He says, I want you to know, I want you to grasp I want you to appropriate the love of Christ. And then he turns right back around and he says, Oh, and by the way, the love of Christ surpasses all knowledge. It's beyond comprehension. Your mind and heart don't have the ability to contain or fathom it. A bit of paradox there. Paul did the same thing when he spoke of the unsearchable riches of Christ back in verse 8 of chapter 3. The point that Paul is trying to make here is that we are so rich and so loved in Christ that it's beyond our finite mind's ability to understand. Can we know our riches? You better believe it. Can we know Christ's love for us? You better believe it. Can we ever exhaust either of them? No way. Not a chance. Whatever your thoughts are of how much you are loved in Christ, if you are in Christ, whatever your thoughts are of His love for you, his love is infinitely greater. It surpasses all knowledge. Though we can't measure it, we certainly can enjoy it. We're going to do this this morning. I'm going to press pause. And we're going to pick right back up here next week. So I'll hold you in a bit of tension and a bit of anxiousness as you think about Paul's third prayer request here. I'll give it to you if you want to fill it in. And that's the that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. comes right from the text there in verse 19. That's Paul's third request. We'll pick right up there next week. But let me ask this question. What about you? Does Christ reside in your heart by faith? Is he actively cleaning the rooms of your heart? Is your inner man being sanctified, renewed, changed, strengthened? Are you bearing more and more resemblance to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you firmly planted, rooted, and grounded in the love of Christ? Is your gospel foundation strong? Are you being filled with all the fullness of God? We'll talk more about what that means next week. Is that true of you? I hope so. I hope you're growing in those areas, at least that the, that the bud of the flower is, is beginning to open in those areas of your life. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ by faith, you're here this morning and, and you profess Him with your mouth, but you don't possess Him by faith and repentance, then we just would encourage you to concede right where you sit. Concede this moment that you're a greater sinner than you ever dared imagine and that Christ is a greater Savior than you ever dared hope. Just concede that right where you sit and receive his matchless mercy and grace. Receive his pardon full and free, paid for on Calvary's cross and ready to be imputed to your account by simple faith and humble repentance. Repent and believe and receive his full, for, and his full forgiveness. Paul has uttered some high theology here in our text for this morning. And that theology, theology, if we correctly understand it, always leads us to doxology, that's praise. Rightly understanding the character, nature, and attributes of God should always lead us to lofty praise. And we'll see that when we gather again next week as well because Paul ends chapter 3 with a high doxology.